because you're out there in this inky blackness of space, seeing our galaxy in the distance, knowing that somewhere there on those outer rings is a teeny little dot that's our sun, and around that is this teeny, teeny little blue-green planet where everybody I know lived, and it just put things in perspective. My guest today is Rick Pyle, who has had many thousands of out-of-body experiences, otherwise known as astral projection, since he was a small child. And Rick has documented many hundreds of those on his YouTube channel called The Astral Club and provides training and assistance to others to help them astral project as well. Rick, welcome, and thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been very much looking forward to this conversation. So have I, Rod. You've been a long-time supporter of the channel, and I'm happy to talk with you. Okay, great. All right, so I've got so many questions for you, but I think that for those who are watching who perhaps aren't all that familiar with out-of-body experiences and astral projection, then what I'd like to do is if you could just tell us about when you first experienced astral projection or when you had an idea of that was what was going on. My first astral projection would have been when I was somewhere around three or four months old. I was lying in a bassinet outside of our apartment and since my mother was nearby and I was in this bassinet and a little spider, which looked enormous to me, started winding its way down and I couldn't move. So there was just, it was just a reaction. Like when the doctor hits your knee with that stone hammer, you can't control it. Since I couldn't move my body, I just started out of my infant self. And I went up about 50 feet or it was somewhere around, I don't know, 13 meters, 14 meters. And then I was able to look down and see my bassinet, see my mother there in her bikini. They even went in and checked out our little apartment because normally you don't get a chance to check out your apartment when you're just a small baby. I was able to describe the apartment, even though we left at 11 months old, I was able to describe years later what our apartment looked like. That was my first astral projection. And I think the reason I remember it is because it was an astral projection. I don't have any other memories from that young age, but that one is very clear. I think it has something to do with the actual out-of-body experience. That was my first. Now, when I got a little bit older, I started going to school and I realized that what I was doing was not what other people did. And yeah, I had dreams just like they did, but I would talk about what I was experiencing in school and they started calling me a liar and making stories up. And I would tell my parents and they were very open-minded, but it was a small town in the sixties. So they didn't really have a frame of reference. And one night I heard them over talking about sending me to a doctor because maybe something was wrong with me. So I stopped talking with them, but I continued to project. It wasn't until I was 11 years old that I found Journeys Out of the Body by Robert Monroe. I found that in a bookstore back in the old occult section before it was New Age spirituality. It was a cult. And I grabbed that book, read it all night long with a flashlight and had school the next day. But I was electrified because finally I had words for what I did. And even more, I knew I wasn't crazy. And I knew I wasn't alone because here's Robert Monroe. He's an engineer. He's an entrepreneur. He's a well-respected businessman, a pilot. And here he is talking about the things that I experienced. Yeah, it was actually you that put me on to Robert Monroe. I could actually thank you for my very first and one and only astral projection experience because 
there was a, quite a lengthy post you'd written on Reddit, I believe that was where I first encountered you. And then you were talking about Robert Monroe. And I think somebody else was talking about Reduga, I forget his first name. Michael. Some methods for Michael Reduga, yeah. And as some methodology for astral projection, I was successful using that methodology. So I've got a, a bunch of topics that I wanted to ask you about, Great. which just from listening to the Astral Club, things that I've found particularly interesting myself. So I'm going to be pretty selfish about that. The first one is when you first relayed the information to your parents about when you were a tiny baby and you gave them the information to say what the apartment looked like, did that take them from non-believers to, you can't be making this up? No, I just, they just were just surprised that I had this memory. It was just considered, wow, that, that's amazing. You have that memory. I, I think my father had astral projections, but he doesn't like to talk about it. My brother was a skeptic for a long time till he had a projection and my daughter has projected. So I suspect there even may be a genetic component somewhere along the line, but they were still very much, they were open-minded. They didn't mind me reading and exploring, but it was hard for them to really understand what, because they had no frame of reference. Or something like this. This is in the 60s, early 70s in a small town in the United States. And there just was no information on this subject. It, it was just considered that, wow, you have some amazing memory of some sort. That's how it was. I was also able to tell, because I had experiences before I was born, where I actually visited my mother's place of business before I was born, because I was checking in with the fetus. I didn't stay there. I checked in with it. In American baseball, we have something called leading bases, and then we have to check in, then we can lead again. That's what I did. She quit before I was born, so I never saw this thing in the physical. But I was able to describe her work to her, too. Now, that blew her away a little bit, and it opened her up a little bit, but still there's a natural skepticism there, which I've become used to my entire life. Because certainly in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, it was a seldom talked about topic, little known. So was, I understood that it was hard for people to accept it. And it's not just something that I just lived with. I enjoyed the experiences. I continued to have them. But I didn't try to convince a lot of other people at that earlier stage. So were your early experiences, were they somewhat like the way Robert Monroe describes them, where it was forced upon him? It was a, an experience that he tried tooth and nail to stop from happening. It was like the same for you, more or less spontaneous, or did you figure out ways you could control the experience over time? It was spontaneous, but I always liked it because I'd be put to bed at, say, 9 o'clock, and then at 9.30, I'd roll out of my body and sneak downstairs, leave the house, fly around our forest, fly around near the school playground. It was like I was sneaking out of the house. For a kid, it was the coolest thing around. And I guess I was still a kid, so I didn't know to be frightened. Adults are frightened because they have all these preconceived notions with religion they've been taught and a lot of other different fears. I was just a kid. I didn't have any fears. I saw some weird things, but I just accepted them as part of the astral scenery. I learned what to stay away from and what not to. But for the most part, most of my beginning experiences for years was stuff. I've got yellow tablets, like yellow school tablets with blue lines. 
I got boxes and boxes of them. And you just read through the experiences. And it's nothing I would talk about in my show because it's just it's boring. It's just me flying around doing mischievous kid stuff, which I enjoyed. Those were my first thousand experiences for per se. I loved it. I never had any fear of it because I, I maybe I was just too stupid. I was a kid. I didn't know that you should be afraid. So it never occurred to me. Just like people say, did you ask for a guide right away? I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I just had fun flying around. It was just a little cheat code that I was able to take advantage of as a kid. <laughs> I like that. It's a cheat code. That's funny. Okay. So let me ask you about the one thing that I'm really fascinated by is the concept of time travel with your astral projections. So could you tell me about how you first ran across the concept of time travel during astral projection and perhaps what your most interesting experience was with regards to that? There's a few of them, but there was, I ran across, and I would continue to look for books and I ran across a book called Astral Travel by Yvonne Frost. Now it was a Wiccan oriented book, witchcraft type of stuff. It wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't attracted by that. And I almost put the book back. Because it had, you got to draw all these pentagrams and salt on the floor. And, and I'm like, there's no way in heck I'm going to get involved in all that just to project. But then I happened to, on this one little chapter where there was just a few paragraphs. And they talked about, with astral projection, you can time travel. And then they talked about some of the truisms associated with it. That if you traveled into the future, you could spend more time there. And then when you return to your body, a much less time had passed by. You could spend 20 minutes in the present, but spend days, weeks, or even months, or longer sometimes, in distant futures. So that's why I bought the book. And that's what attracted me to the whole idea. Now, unfortunately, they didn't say how you do it. So I had to experiment for months trying to figure out how I would make this happen. And I had a lot of failures in the process until eventually I figured out that if I flew faster and faster while concentrating my entire will on one single thought, which was, I wish to go to this particular year and I would isolate, no other thoughts would enter my mind. And then if I did it right, and it would happen about 30 to 40% of the time, it didn't always happen. Essentially, some sort of a gate opens up, a rent in the fabric of the universe, and it's a long tunnel. And I would then fly down that, keeping in my mind that thought for as long as I could until I became unconscious. And then I would end up becoming conscious, waking up. I might be floating above the earth. I might be deep underwater, which is unsettling to become conscious deep underwater, especially when it's dark. I've been in the different oceans. I've been in farmer's fields, hovering above the earth in a wide variety of places. And I would say that geez, probably the most profound one was when I went to 15,000 AD, where I encountered a very different situation on earth. There was a legend that the cities of the gods had been destroyed in a day and a night. And it was due to their greed and to their hubris, which reminded me a lot of our Atlantis myth. Indeed, it is myth. And there I encountered a tribe which was 
on its last legs. And normally I don't, I have this non-interference directive. I try not to interfere, but there was a little girl about the age of my daughter who was obviously starving and I couldn't help but interfere. And so I went down and I helped them find food because it was easy for me. I could scout for miles and find out where the game was. And over a period of time, I spent a period of years there. And it certainly seemed like that to me. And I used my skills to turn back the signals trying to recall me. And they became my tribe. And uh, it wasn't until I was taken back while I was semi-resting. You never always sleep, but semi-resting. And I became part of the tribe. Before that, they had this superstition where you weren't allowed to spend the night in the environs of the tribe unless you were a member. Well, I would use this explore the earth in that future. It was much less population than there is now, I can tell you that. Now, they would call me the spirit of the morning because I'd return in the morning. But later on, I was adopted by the tribe. And, and so I was quite happy there, actually, until I was taken back suddenly and returned to my body only to find 20 minutes had gone by. And I remember I had to go to work and I, and my wife asked me why I stood, I was in the garage for 20 minutes, just sitting in my car. So I was just trying to reviewing how to operate it because it had been so long that I was rusty. And that was probably the most profound experience of, it really affected me more than all of the other ones. Now, space travel, it was when I wanted to see our galaxy from the outside looking in. And that affected me too, because you're out there in this inky blackness of space, seeing our galaxy in the distance, knowing that somewhere there are those outer rings is a teeny little dot that's our sun. And around that is this teeny, teeny little blue green planet where everybody I know lived. And it just put things in perspective. Time travel does that too, because we think of the world around us, even though we intuitively know it's not permanent, we think of it as permanent. But when you time travel, you see how just impermanent everything is, just how temporary everything is. And some people might be depressed at that fact, but I find a peace in that realization that everything around me is, should be appreciated. The smell of, of the air after a rain. Uh, the sound of birds, all of these things have to be treasured because they won't be here forever. The land around us will change. Everything will change. So it's allowed me to have a better appreciation of our world and what we have and how we should be grateful for what we have. Because my tribe in 15,000 AD, when I told stories of how we lived, they couldn't believe it. They said, everybody... Well, the cities of the God, you all must have been ecstatically happy with your life. They were so easy. And then I tried to tell them just how unhappy so many people were living in what for them was a paradise. I told them how we got food. We just went to, a, we just went to one place, grabbed all the food we needed and left. And they couldn't conceive of these things. And they couldn't conceive of how we couldn't possibly be happy in such a paradise. That also made me appreciate what we have too, because when you see what they had to deal with, it makes you appreciate what we have. So the time that, so 15,000 AD, 
I think we both agree on this is that time, or especially when you're talking about the future, they're all future probabilities, right? And there's many different probabilities. Oh, possible so, futures. That is correct. Man still has to be yeah. well. So what do you think it was that you ended up in that particular possible future? I think I was looking for peace at that time in my life. And I was attracted to that future unconsciously. I wasn't looking for something like that consciously, but the subconscious, what have you, plays a part in this experience. And I think on some level, I was craving something like that. And so that's where I ended up. That's a theory, at least. And was there a point where you thought, it looks like I'm just going to be here for a very long time, if not forever? Yes, that's what I thought. After I'd been there for a few years, and I'd turned back a few return signals, using my will once again, I thought that I would end up spending the rest of a long time because there's no way I, I couldn't die in that period of time because I knew my physical body was way back in the past. I theorized that only minutes were going by, but I wasn't sure, but I was happy to stay there because I really helped gave them a lot of knowledge that, that they needed. And I felt mm. at peace there. And it was interesting just seeing how happy they were and how happy they could be. All, if they had a roof over their heads and they had food for that day, maybe even tomorrow, they were happy. They were happy. They owned very little, but they were happy. Yeah. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that? You talk about the return signal. That's something that you get as you're astral projecting in. Yeah. How does that work? One of the reasons why I tell people that as soon as you leave your body, you have to get as far away from your physical body possible because the closer you are, the stronger this gravitational pull is and the harder it is to fight. One of the reasons why I traveled into the future was because the signal becomes weaker as you go further out. It never stops, but it becomes weaker, easier to fight. Some books, some tapes tell you to go look in your bathroom mirror and see how funny you look and all the rest of this kind of stuff. Or they tell you, look at your physical body. See, you got some, some slobber or whatever on your pillow. These are bad, this is bad advice because you are gonna have a very short experience because you're gonna end up being pulled back in. On the other hand, the further you travel away, the longer you can stay out. Now, at some point, there's a signal and it can feel like a tug on the back of your head. Sometimes it even feels like the back of your back, usually the back of your head. And most people can't fight it because it requires an extreme exercise of will to stay out of your body when that signal comes. And I've worked on that over the years such that I've been able to fight it most of the time. But of course, still, I eventually get pulled back because you can only fight it for so long because the physical body cannot live without the astral body. It can be without it for a period of time, but it can't live without it for a long period of time. So it ends up pointed back eventually. Now, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about the relationship between NDEs, because I've had a lot of near-death experiences on the channel, and OBEs, out-of-body experiences. 
and the differences between the two from your perspective and whether you've been to similar places that NDEs talk about or whether they tend to be separate? I would, call, I would say they're cousins. It's a cousin experience, NDEs and astral projections. Now, astral projections, at least by somebody's experience, you tend to have much more control over them. NDEs tend, and it might be just because people aren't experienced, they find themselves out of their body. They're usually perplexed. And then suddenly at some point, depending on how far this thing goes, they get pulled, sometimes down a long, dark tunnel. Now, I had some experiences in my earlier astral projections where I would travel. I'd slide down a long, dark tunnel before I'd emerge onto my projection. I haven't had that experience in a long time, but it reminded me of the biblical value of the shadow of death. And it reminded me of that whole experience. Now, with the NDE, you usually travel down some sort of tunnel, something that takes you from the physical to a different place in the astral. Astral projection, you're also working within the astral. But automatically, when you first leave the body, you tend to be on the lower astral, unless you will yourself elsewhere. The NDE tends to be controlled in some fashion by something because they all tend to follow very similar steps, whereas astral projections can be all over the place. And uh, my astral projections aren't controlled by any outside entity. I go where I want to go. NDEs tend to be drawn to this separate place. Now, many of these planes or subplanes are reserved for those who've just passed on. Now, I have been in situations where I've seen airports, I've seen trains, I've seen buses, I've seen things that are what I call conventionalization. And it's a way for these entities to understand that they are transiting, that they are moving from one place to another. It helps to soften the blow. I found myself on a train like that once because I started asking, I wonder where people go when they first pass. And that's where I willed myself. I found myself on this particular train and on it, there was a number of people, most of them very old, and they tended to be a little clueless. They knew they were on a train, but when I asked them where they were going, they weren't quite sure. They were a bit confused about the whole process. And, and then typically with NDEs, you have all kinds of situations where sometimes you meet a holy figure that perhaps figures into your religion. Some, many folks report heavenly type things. A few folks report very different experiences. I don't know. I think some of that stuff's subjective. So in both situations, your spirit is leaving your physical body. Now, you, at some point, it's going to stop short. Because if it's an MDE, you're not dead. You are close to death, but you're still connected to your physical body through an astral cord. It may have been weakened, but it's still there. So you only go so far. And then some entity, something says you got to go back. And then you end up going back. And of course, you can tell your story. In astral projection, you end up going back as well. But so they're very similar experiences. So. I have been in some planes where there are people who've newly passed over. I've been able to help 
and guide some of those folks who were a little confused and just needed somebody to just help them and let them know that they're in a safe place and that they should calm down, clear their mind and ask for help with a joyous or a loving thought. And then generally they disappear and I, I never see them again. So I would say there's similar type experiences. However, I would much rather astral project on a regular basis than have NDEs on a regular. Given the choice, I'll take the astral project. Have you ever encountered any relatives who have passed over during your astral well, projections? I haven't lost a lot of people. My, my parents are still alive and I'm extremely lucky for that. I lost my grandmother back in 1979 and she came to me the night she died and I was just leaving my body and she came to me and said that she had just passed. And so I said my goodbyes. In the morning, when the phone rang, I told my mother that my grandmother has passed. And she looked at me strangely and then picked up the phone. And that's when she got the news that my grandmother had passed. More recently, my wife's father, my father-in-law, who I was very close to, my wife requested that to see if I could go and visit him. Because I don't just do these things unless I've got some sort of permission to do so since it's not my relative directly. And I went there and it was very early. It was within 30 days. He passed extremely suddenly, but I found him with his parents celebrating Christmas and Christmas was always a special thing for him. He decorate the whole house and he had all these train sets up and he really enjoyed the holiday and he missed his parents and enjoyed celebrating that with him. And I had a conversation with him. And he told me he was doing fine, that I should relay that to my wife and to his other children. And, and I did, and I wished him well. So those are the, those are the two folks that I knew that passed on. I, like I said, I've been very lucky that I haven't really lost a lot of people. I wanted to ask you about your encounters with alien species, other than human species during your right. travels. There are, there are some aspects of this that you can't talk about, but there, there are others that you can. And I know you've got a number of videos on your channel about this. So could you relay perhaps one or two of your, uh, firstly, how the, how you ended up running into alien species and, and then what you learned? I, I had abduction experiences when I was a kid and so did my brother. We would both wake up with bloody noses on a regular basis. Now, kids do have bloody noses but we tended to get them a lot. And, and I remember when I was just out of college and I sneezed and this little baby came out with these little wires on it. And I kept it for a while until one day it just disappeared from where I had it. So I don't know what happened to it, but so I had some memories of that type of thing, but I did They weren't really clear. Later on, I, I was able to, recover some of those memories and it seemed like they were involved with the grays and what was odd is it seemed that astral projection was connected with these abduction experiences As a matter of fact i one time i went aboard one of their craft which was a huge craft hovering outside hovering around our earth but it was shielded in some way i don't we couldn't see it and he was being examined and he is his astral body was floating above 
And I could tell he was frightened out of his mind. He didn't know what was going on. So there's something to do with astral projection. But my actual contact with the Greys didn't come until I was sent there by the, the Galactic Council that I ended up working for a period of time. And I was asked to go and uh, try to establish some relationships with them. And, and that's when I went to their planet, which is a very dry, very desert type planet. And, and I interacted with one particular being there. And he used to be a, a commander in their space fleet, but he didn't like what was going on with their policy on Earth. So they ended up assigning him near the poles of their planet, working, growing their fungus, this fungus that they eat. And so that's what I started getting to know them a little bit. They're not as emotional as we are, and they have a lot of problems understanding us and why we react so violently to abduction. They don't, they have a hard time understanding it. I don't think they feel fear quite the same way that we do. They're a very unified species. And I, they, I don't think they quite understand the depths of our emotions. And I've tried to convey that as best I could, because there's a lot of people who do not like having these experiences. I can't blame them. That's how I got involved with the grays. I also observed a, I guess they call them the tall whites. Some people think they're the Pleiadians. I don't know. I went deep in the Gulf of Mexico looking for something like that. And I found this craft that was deep in the Gulf of Mexico. And they had a base there. And I was surprised to see that there was an Air Force full bird colonel that was inter a human interacting with these tall whites who look a lot like us. The women are six foot something, so they're not too out of the ordinary. The men are much taller, but really the women have blonde hair. If they put some contact lenses in and the women dress themselves up a little bit, they could probably pass in New York City and nobody would look twice at them with all the strange folks going around there. But I didn't really interact with them. They couldn't see me. The greys could. They had the ability to see my astral body, especially when I was in the lower vibratory. The Pleiadians could not. So I stayed hidden. And I found out that this full bird colonel, I was in the Air Force myself. And I got some interesting briefings because I had top secret security clearance. Now, I didn't get the real briefings because I didn't have a need to know the real stuff. But I had some top secret briefings because I was in the missile launch. I was a missile launch officer. And we had our silos every now and again just going offline for no particular good reason. And that's a major problem because you have to keep your missiles on alert. And... So we get briefings on how there was the sightings of these mysterious craft, which they told us it was possibly the Soviets. And we're like, okay. But so there were some interesting briefings associated with that. I had to sign all kinds of stuff saying that if I talked about them, I could be up to a lifetime in jail and all the rest of this kind of nonsense. But it, that certainly got me interested in the topic, I'll be honest with you. After that, I bought Whitley Schrieber's book which is a classic book in the grays and the abduction phenomena. Communion, that's the title of it. Those are some of the species I've had to deal with. There's been some others, but those are the ones that are probably the most popular or most well-known. 
to people interested in the topic. Yeah, I read Whitley's book. I think I was a teenager. must have been 12 or 13, Communion. And I wrote to Whitley and said how much I thought his book was fascinating. And I got a letter back. It was back before email or anything. The letter was to say that he gets literally thousands of letters per day. And so it wasn't really him writing back, but he does read all of them. The cover would freak me out. I, it would cause problems. So I didn't want to look at the cover, but I enjoyed the book. It was certainly very interesting. One of the first mainstream books about the topic of abduction and that type of phenomena. Yeah. So that was certainly very interesting. It got me interested in the topic and. Yeah. He's a book. He's just released them, them. I think it's called them. I just finished reading it. It's really interesting. It takes everything that's happened since communion and he bundles it all up and introduces some new hypotheses about what the visitive phenomenon it is all about. It's really interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I also wanted to ask about your encounters with AI, given AI is a pretty polarizing topic nowadays. I have very limited experience with that. I've had it a couple different ways. Really, the biggest way I had that surprised me is when I went to the mental plane. I've been there only twice. It's very difficult to do that because you not only have to park your physical body and then go in the astral, but you have to park your astral body to get into the mental plane. And it's a very alien environment. Astral is comparatively easy. Because at least there's usually things like signposts. There's points of reference. In the mental plane, there is no such thing. And it's timeless. It's thoughts that you're mixing with other people's thoughts. If you're there long enough, it's easy to lose the ego because it starts flowing away from you. You lose sense of self the longer you're there. And when I was exploring the mental plane, I encountered AI. I encountered AI beings that weren't necessarily from Earth. They may have been from another civilization, but they were definitely AI. And so that was the experience that I really had. Because many people think that if there ever is AI, will they develop something as esoteric as what we call a soul? Perhaps. I saw them on the mental plane. I don't know how else they would have gotten there. And and the other experience was an AI planet. And and I didn't spend a lot of time there, but I did have a conversation, which I had a a video or podcast about it not that long ago. And I had my conversation with them and it, it went pretty much, I guess, like you might expect. They were curious. They weren't fixated on exploring space from the standpoint of putting things inside of capsules and going there. And for them, it was just a matter of sending out probes and then they would have continuous communication with that probe from an AI situation where you are place is irrelevant because everything is hooked in together. You might as well be a light year away as in the same room, if you've got that type of connection happening. So they explore that way. They're looking, they're curious, but they're also looking for raw materials. They're looking to expand. They're not interested in terrestrial planets because they don't need air. They don't need food. They don't need water. Quite frankly, they'd rather not have water. 
because metal rusts. So they're not a danger from that standpoint. And they were very interested in how I traveled there and how I traveled there in spirit. And they seem to think that now that they have the idea, it was just a matter of time before they figured out how to do it too. They seem to be very sure of themselves because they didn't seem to think there was any problem they couldn't solve as long as they devoted all their attention to it. And they had a planet that was massively AI. So I can only imagine the whatever's bigger than many terabytes they must have had going on there. And uh, so now what happens here on Earth? There are possible futures where we develop AI. And I think I agree with Stephen Hawking. I think it's something that we need to be concerned about. I, I think it's something that we shouldn't treat lightly because evolution works with a certain logic and there's a survival of the most adaptive. And if we create a superior being, it might supplant us. That's the natural order of things. Now, I don't think it's going to be Terminator. I don't think they're going to run around shooting laser beams, wiping us out that way. I could see them just taking care of us and just making sure all of our needs are met. And don't worry about a thing. Just chill. We'll do it all for you. And eventually, we'll just die out with a smile on our face. Why go through all of that violence? Machines, they got a long view. They're not dying in 100 years, okay? So what's 100 years? What's 1,000 years to a machine? It's nothing. That's my theory, at least. I don't have anything to base that on. That's just my thoughts. Now, you've had some encounters with lots of different entities, including those, what you might call angels, entities from the angelic realms, if, for another way of putting it. Could you tell us about how your first encounter happened and uh, any ongoing experiences? Sure. Yeah. Some people call them angels. Some people call them guides, whatever. They don't really care what you call them, quite frankly. I think my first experience happened relatively late because keep in mind that as a kid, I never knew you could do it. And when I found out that you could, I don't like asking for help. Unlike that old fashioned guy, back when they used to have maps before they had GPS, I, my wife would be like, just ask for directions. I'm not going to ask for directions. So I'm very independent that way. I don't like asking for help. But quite frankly, I was confronted years ago by my angel guide. He, he abruptly met me in my bedroom when I first left my body and surprised me. And he introduced himself and he said that he needed to give me some assignments. And at first I gave him, I've always given him a bit of a hard time and I've always used dry humor on him. And he used to go right over his head. Now I think he actually gets some of the humor now, but he asked, for, he asked, I think he was just trying to train me. And I had been asking in a certain way for some extra training so that I could help folks. And that's when he started taking me. He, he took me, for instance, to this famous Philadelphia prison. It was actually the first real prison in the United States. And it was built in Philadelphia in the 18th century. At the time, people would come from all over the world to go to this prison because it was considered an enlightened way to deal with crime. In the past, you didn't put people in prison. When somebody was bad, you didn't put them in a nice place 
and give them food, not what people were starving. You would just brand his cheek tea for thief or something and then cut them loose or even hang them. There was no long-term imprisonment. But the whole idea behind this was we're going to put people in isolation because with isolation, they'll have a chance to reflect on the evil of their ways, thereby reforming themselves. And in each one of these cells, there'd be a little skylight, which would have a little bit of sun coming down, symbolizing that there was this greater reality that if you could somehow reform yourself, the light was there. Of course, it was a hell on earth. Because it turns out, when you put social animals, like humans, into teeny little cells, and keep them there, and not let anybody talk to them, in ultimate silence, for years at a time, they go crazy. They, like, that's just, it's a bad idea. But it took them a long time to figure that out. Finally closed it down. I think sometimes in that, sometime in the 50s. Now they take people through it for Halloween because there's rumored to be all kinds of ghosts. I went through it with my wife in a, in a class that she had that, that was for Halloween and all this kind of stuff. Now he took me there and that's where I encountered one particular spirit that had been dwelling there in its own self-hatred and loathing for a hundred years or more. And I was confronted with it, as well as some other spirits. And some of them I was able to help. This particular one was atrocious. It was more beast than man at that point in time. It would figure later on into my other experiences. But at the time, I was being taken to this place as a learning experience of this place of suffering of souls. Because just because you die in a place like that doesn't necessarily mean you leave it. Now, nobody keeps you there. You keep yourself there because you're wrapped up in grief, in jealousy, in hatred, in longing for drugs, longing for alcohol, a million different. Going to a place in Philadelphia I did recently, it's called Kensington, and it's a place of suffering in the physical and in the astral. There's this drug that is just terrorizing parts of America right now. And it causes people to contort their bodies and be in these odd positions for long periods of time while their body rots away. It's just awful. And the worst part is that when they die, when they finally get that release from this tortured physical body, they don't necessarily get released because they're still so trapped in that longing that they're stuck there. And that's one of the things that he would help me with. And he eventually introduced me to Astral Guide School where I got more formalized training, if you will. Another time he took me to a funeral parlor. I used to say to him, why are you always taking me to these depressing places? Why can't we go to a nice place for once? You take me out, we go to these awful places. I don't even get a dinner, nothing. So. It was part of my education, and he's always been there, I think, on some level. But he didn't actually manifest himself until, on some level, I requested it. And that happened much later for me, because unlike most people, it wasn't something I needed to do. Now, he told me his name. He has a name. But I was asked, I sworn not to share it, because it's, if somebody's very powerful, it can be like somebody's shouting in your ear for them. 
if they're not powerful, it's like somebody whispering in the background. That's just annoying. So that's why generally they try to keep these things secret um, because it's just annoying otherwise. But he came, I called, and he's helped to educate me to, to be able to help others on the astral, which is something I wanted to do because traveling and having these experiences are wonderful, but it should be more than just me. I should be able to assist humanity if I can in whatever small, tiny way I can. If I can do that, then everything else that I've gone through is worth it. I believe it's the reason I came back. Nobody forced me to come back. I see all these people, whenever I make a reincarnation video, I always get a small minority of folks who come after me as if I'm the role maker, as if I'm the one who's created this whole reincarnation cycle. And I don't know whether to be insulted or to be complimented to think that I've got that kind of power. All I can do is just explain what happens. And if you're someone who's dead set against coming back because you've had such a hard time in the West, how hard a time can you have in the West? Go live in some of these countries in the third world where they don't, where they have to get water from polluted wells and tell me what a hard time you've had. I'm sorry. I have a hard time with these first world problems, as my daughter likes to say. It's just, it's all been about, it's helped me learn. And then he helped get me an astral guide school so that I could prepare. I came here to do this work. I volunteered to come here to do this work. And, and that's what I'm about. I spent a lot of years gaining experience. And so what I'm trying to do is share that experience. I don't talk about things that I've read unless I say, okay, I want to talk about this particular book by Robert Bruce, Astral Dynamics, so that people know that I'm getting this out of a particular book. But even then I'll talk about, I, I'll say, oh, yeah, I could testify to this because I've experienced this particular thing myself. Or uh, he's reported this. I can't say I've experienced that. So take it with a grain of salt. But it's all about, it's education. If I can get more people astral projecting or at least getting in touch with the spirituality, the, the knowledge that this isn't all that exists, that there is a lot more and that we need to take a big picture. And even more importantly, we need to recognize that we're not all individuals that are fighting against one another to, for supremacy. We rise and fall together as a species. For the first time in history, we've got all it takes to obliterate human life on this planet. I don't like to say to destroy the earth because the earth will recover in millions of years if we do that. But humanity can very easily wipe itself out or reduce itself to a primitive state. We've got that power. So unless we become united and realize what joins us, we're in trouble. And if I can help in the smallest way to move that spirit forward, then this whole life and everything I've gone through is worth it. How can people find out more about what you do, Rick? For those who are interested in learning more about astral projection, where do you suggest that people start? I mean, if they look at Astral Club on YouTube, they can find my channel. There's about 280 podcasts on there now, going back about three years, and it covers a wide variety of topics. And you've mentioned, we mentioned some of them, time travel, space travel, 
dimensional travel, just a wide variety of topics, as well as your just normal astral projection, how to do it, and things that you can expect to see when you project. I think many people are frightened because that people fear is an animal fear. It's, it's the fear of the unknown. If people know what to expect, then they won't be as fearful. And that's something that I want to accomplish as well. That education that no, you're not going to be possessed the minute you leave your body. If that was true, my head would be turning around uh, 360 degrees and all kinds of other stuff would be going on. And it, so I've done it thousands of times. If it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. So just education to help people understand that there's nothing frightening about it. It's a wonderful experience. And have you got anything that you'd like to leave the viewers with before we wrap it up? Really? Just like I said before, understand that we're united as a human species. We've got a heck of a lot more in common than what's surface separates us and that understanding that will help us to survive and thrive as a species. And I think astral projection helps you to achieve that realization because it takes you out of your small little physical body and you get to see the greater world and understand that you are more than just your physical body and so is everyone else. And that there's a lot more involved than just this physical life, this physical time. Yes, do your thing in this lifetime, but understand that there's much more to come in the future and that we should do it together as a species. Rick, thank you for that message. And thank you so much for coming on the channel. I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me from all across the other side of the world. Thanks a lot, Rod. I appreciate it.